Friday, everybody. It is Jay Scott with The Hook, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Hope everyone's getting ready for the holidays here. We're continuing with our holiday series with Tales of the Sunset Strip. We all know about it. Every rocker, every rock fan knows about the Sunset Strip, how important it was back in the 80s, late 70s, throughout the 80s, how it became to be, what it was like, and how it will never be replicated again. We're welcoming back Gerald Guzman, who was our first guest five months ago when we started this podcast. How are you doing today, Gerald? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, man. It's been a while since you've been on. The Randy Rhodes yeah. podcast episode was very well received. A lot of people enjoyed it, but it's been way I too long. That. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for that first opportunity to talk about Randy, and uh, thanks for bringing me back. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I've uh, been looking forward to it. I know after we did that episode, we talked about what we were going to do next with you as a guest and the topic of the Sunset Strip and what it meant to 80s rock uh, was the topic that we both agreed upon that should be next. I kind of went off on a, on a tangent with uh, with my music discussion episodes about the current state of rock, and I you know kind of kept that going, and we'll continue to do that throughout 2020. But now that we have mm-hmm. the opportunity to have you back and, and talk about the subject that we always wanted to talk about since that first episode, it's glad you're here. And yes, the 80s rock sunset strip rock and roll scene. Man. What a, I mean, I was one of the few people from here in the Midwest who got to go out there for a little while and, and actually experience it myself. So it was, like you said, there's nothing like it and there'll never be anything like it again. It was quite an experience. Yes, it was. I mean, I was young enough. I never got a, a chance to experience the Sunset Strip, you know, you know the rock scene back in the 80s in, in Hollywood. But we all knew about it, right? That's where predominantly all the bands were coming from, at least in the early part of the 80s. And if you were in a small town, whether in the Midwest or in the South or out in the East, a lot of the bands, a lot of the local bands that were doing well made the trek to the Sunset Strip to try to get noticed and to try to get a record deal. That was a pretty common thing. Back oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not every band that got signed out of L.A. was from L.A. I mean, Poison traveled across the country from Pennsylvania and then Axel Rose was from Indiana and he went out there to make it. And, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you were a musician back in that era, um, you know, Hollywood and the sunset strip is where you went to, to, to make it, to become a rock star. So absolutely. The band Van Halen is, is really the one that propelled the sunset strip into everyone's mind back then. You know, I mean, they were the first band oh, yeah. coming out of L.A. that made it huge. They were from Pasadena. They were from the Valley. And they started playing Gazaris. And if you're really interested in the history of Van Halen prior to Van Halen 1, a great book by Greg Renoff called Van Halen Rising is a must for all Van Halen, for all rock and roll fans back in the day, back from then, and they really the you know the ones that propelled that that scene to start because after Van Halen made it in the late seventies, you had bands like Mickey Rat that later became Rat, obviously Motley Crue, yep, 
you had Quiet Riot yep. with Randy Rhodes. Those were really the first few bands that were able to come out of that scene as a result of the Van Halen success. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Van Halen kind of kickstarted the whole scene um, in the 70s, and then it just exploded in the 80s. Right, and, and the popularity gained from MTV from those bands, from really the three specific bands that you know I mentioned were Motley Crue, Rat, and Quiet Riot. Quiet Riot, I believe, had the first number one album, rock album in that era with Metal Health and, yeah. and Shout yeah, the Devil. Absolutely. Yeah, Shout the Devil. We all know the story of Motley Crue from the movie The Dirt. Yep. Um, the, 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 <laughs> yeah. the, the Sunset Strip was very prevalent in that story, both in the book and the movie. Rat, who came up from San Diego, was another band that was leading the way, especially with their success through with the album Out of the Cellar, with the songs Round and Round and Back for More. So those were really the three mm-hmm. bands that kind of propelled that scene to go even further, right? I mean, at, cause, Yeah, because all those bands... Yeah, because a lot of those bands broke and probably, what, the... Uh, the like 83 to 80, you know, early eighties, mid eighties. And then all of a sudden, uh, after 86, then it just, it just exploded into the legendary status that we all know of. People forget how raw the eighties or the early eighties rock era was. I mean, when you consider the Van Halen coming, um, you know, from the late seventies with Van Halen one and Van Halen two, when you listen to women and children first, Obviously, ACDC was very prevalent back then with the with the album Back in Black. You had the new wave new wave of British heavy metal with bands like Iron Maiden oh, yeah. and Def Leppard. So it was very primitive. Saxon and all that. Yeah, Saxon and uh, Tigers of Pantang. Obviously, Diamond Head had a huge influence on Metallica. You had bands coming yep. from the Bay Area like Night Ranger and Y&T. Uh, on the East Coast, you had bands like Twisted Sister that were just, you know, huge into the club scene out there. But when you listen to that early 80s era, it was very raw. And even the first Rat EP, when you listen to that, that was com- that's completely different than anything Rat did after that. Um, yep, you're right. It was, uh, it was raw, and then uh, the record industry stepped in and, it, and made it, like, Polished and glam. Well, and one of the, I, yeah, one of the bands, a lot of, one of the bands we talk about, Motley Crue, is very, very much responsible for glamming it up because I firmly believe that the back cover of Theater of Pain, coupled with the success of Home Sweet Home, changed everything. Because yeah, because then because then every record label wanted to sign a band that was like Motley Crue and the formula was you would release a rock song first and then you would release a ballad second. And so every record label was trying to get their own Motley Crue signed to signed to their, for their label. So you're right. Once, uh, once Motley Crue became this glam band with a number one ballad, then that was the formula that everyone jumped on, um, throughout, uh, the, the next few years in Hollywood. Plus the impact of that back cover too, as well. When you look at Motley Crue with too fast for love, there were elements of glam with their look, certainly in that period, but then they released a quintessential heavy metal record 
with Shout Out to Devil. I mean, say what you want about Motley Crue now or how Motley Crue ended up with their type of music. Shout Out to Devil with the cover, the black cover with a black-on-black pentagram was a huge, huge influence on the heavy metal movement. That was a huge heavy metal record. And then going from that album into Theater of Pain, where they're basically in women's lingerie, all glammed up, and they got this power ballad on the album. I mean, like you just said, I mean, that changed the game with the record labels. Every band that was getting signed or had been signed had to glam it up and had to have their power ballad. And, uh, you know, and it, it reminds, it also reminds me of uh, something that I, I remember happening back then too. You had bands that were like Crocus who were out in the late seventies and early eighties. Right. And then you had, um, who's another band from like, Oh, like except, uh, they were, they were out in the early eighties and they were, they were pretty raw. And then when they, um, when they got major record deals or as the scene evolved, all of a sudden, uh, a band that was raw like Crocus, all of a sudden they're wearing clothes similar to what Motley Crue was wearing on the theater of pain album. All of a sudden, you know, songs like headhunter are turning into more poppy hooky songs. So even bands that started out as being raw were being transformed by record labels to be more like Motley Crue. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I had that album Crocus uh, with the song Midnight Maniac on it, and there you we, go. That yeah. was one, that was the one that that was the song I was trying to think of, and you got it. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah, I had. How do you go from Headhunter to <laughs> How do you go from Headhunter to Midnight Maniac? I mean, uh, you, the you, record label. You can even you can even go back and say, how do you go from Long Stick Goes Boom to Midnight Maniac? You know, I mean, and right. I and I had that cassette. I forget the name of the album. Uh, that that was on, but I had that cassette in fourth grade, and I remember there was a woman <laughs> twirling on the cover that you could just see the bottom of her butt, right? And I remember my fourth grade teacher confiscating it from me, having my parents come in to talk to the principal. I was in a Catholic school. I was basically told I was going to hell for having that album, <laughs> and it was it was crazy, but it was becoming more and more mainstream. I was the kid in the Catholic school because of my older brother that was always bringing rock music when all my friends were, you know, bringing culture club and men at work and Duran Duran. I was bringing twisted sister, quiet riot. And it was, it took a couple years before everyone started to follow what I was listening to because it was becoming more mainstream. But yes, you are right. Because I mean, when you look at accept, they go from balls to the wall to screaming for a love bite, you know? And right. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was happening all in front of us, right? And, and then there were even bands that came later that I believe got got stuck in that glam period that had to glam it up. They didn't have a choice. One of the bands that comes to mind is Cinderella. When you, If you listen to Cinderella without looking at their videos, just listening to their music, they are not a hair band or glam band. They are a blues-based rock and roll band, and they got. And then you look at the cover, and you look at the cover of their first album, which doesn't make any sense as far as the music, like you just described, that they did. Right, right. I mean, it was more in line with Aerosmith, more in line with ACDC, and I still feel that if they didn't have that label, they would have been more relevant more popular today and more accepted today because now they're accepted as that hair metal band. 
And that's why I think really Tom Kiefer is trying to really, really, you know, get into his solo career and, and, and develop his solo albums because he wants to get as far away from as possible from that label because and he and, and, and I feel bad because he should do that, right? I mean, he should accept right. you know, the music should be accepted, but unfortunately it always comes with that label of hairband metal. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. So after the Theater of Pain record came out, everybody started to come out with, you know, their glammed up look. I mean, one of the most glammed up albums, album covers that I can think of off the top of my head is Look What the Cat Dragged In. I mean, there was, you know, oh, yeah. you know that, that was a complete, that was a complete um, uh, influence from Theater of Pain. And I remember. Oh, of course. Yeah, I remember getting that record, and I and, and there were a couple moments where I'm like, are these all guys, or is it a couple guys? Because, you know, you couldn't really tell from that album cover, and that actually caused a lot of friction between Motley Crue and Poison for a long time because Motley Crue felt that they blatantly stole their look. That's a different story for a different time, but... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, but that that's really where it went. It went in that direction, and here was the biggest thing, right? Because everybody was glammed up. When you think of 80 to 85 and then 85 to 86, like Midway Point or whatever, the girls got into it. And that's what you know made the Sunset Strip scene really take off because the girls started listening to it. And whenever chicks are listening to the music, guys want to be around it. And it's a perfect formula. You see that in today's music now. You see that in every successful genre throughout time. Whenever there's girls wanting to dance or wanting to have a good time, that music genre is always going to be successful. Well, I can tell you from my own personal experience, you know, Poison wasn't my one of my favorite bands back in the day. But I sure as hell went to every Poison concert because every hot chick I knew was going to be there. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That is the truth. Whether it's Bon Jovi, whether it's Poison, whether it was Skid Row, Motley Crue, Rat. I mean, it became a predominantly male audience, you know, or it became from a predominantly male audience in the early 80s to predominantly a female audience. I mean, I remember the girls in my school over the summer going from Duran Duran wearing Bon Jovi, Poison T-shirts, all that stuff. And it became mainstream. Well, my high school girlfriend went through that transformation. Because when I first started dating her, like, I think Michael Jackson was like her favorite artist. And when we started dating, I started introducing her to heavy metal. And next thing you know, she's got Aquanet, her hair sprayed to the ceiling. She had naturally brown hair. She dyed it bleach blonde. She's in miniskirt. She's in body socks and high heels. She got Motley Crue and White Snake and all that stuff on her wall. So she absolutely went through that transformation like a lot of other girls did. My son always asks me, so, you know, when when these bands that he listens to, you know, whether it's Greta Van Fleet, whether it's whomever, Dirty Honey, Joyous Wolf, he's like, when are these bands gonna gonna really like be popular and make it big? And I say, when chicks start listening. Once, once the girls, yep. yeah. Once the girls in your high school start listening to this stuff, everything will change. Absolutely correct. So let's get yeah, into guys want to be able to go. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so sorry, let's, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, so let's get into 
your experiences on the Sunset Strip. I mean, I know you've got some stories to tell. Some are really interesting um, and really cool. But why don't we dive into that? What was your first experience hanging out in Hollywood, hanging out in the Sunset Strip? What was that like? So um, in 1987, I turned 21, and uh, so did my best friend. So we decided that since we were of age, because the drinking age was 21, obviously, at the time, and still is. So when we turned 21, we're like, we're going to California for a vacation, and we're going we're gonna to experience the Sunset Strip like firsthand. We'd seen all the videos on MTV, and it was like, we need to go check this out. So... Uh, the summer of 87, uh, we went out to California and we, uh, stayed a week at a hotel right in the middle of Hollywood and went out every single night. Uh, there was music playing every night, uh, whether it was the Roxy or the Troubadour, uh, the whiskey. And then of course, you know, the rain, the famous rainbow bar and grill where like everybody ended up at, um, no matter what. So Back in that era, or back in that day, I remember I was in California. I was in California when the Guns N' Roses album uh, got released. So that was like the big talk. You know, Guns N' Roses album came out today, and, and so did Faster Pussycat. So they, everyone was thinking that these two bands were going to be the next best thing, uh, the next big thing to break out of California. So um, there was also a club out there called The Cat House, which... Um, Ricky Rackman and the, and the singer from Faster Pussycat co-managed or co-owned, and uh, we would go out to go to, to that too. And there was anybody and everybody that you can imagine was hanging out there too. Um, I I remember going to the Cat House. Uh, I know I told you the story um, before, but I remember going to the Cat House one night. Um, Faster Pussycat was actually the band playing that night. And, um, I was hanging out with some band with a, a band that was from Chicago. They were called war cry in Chicago. And then they changed their name to Tommy gun. And then they moved out to California to, uh, to, you know, just try to make it just like, um, any band uh, would want to do at that time, you know, go to Hollywood because that's where the scene was. And we were hanging out. One of the guys from the band, uh, points out this tall, skinny, blonde haired guy standing kind of by himself. Nobody's talking to him, just kind of hanging out. And he's like, Hey, that's that. Wow, that's the new guitar player for for Ozzy. And I remember my brother and I beelining over to him and uh, um, having this awesome conversation with him because he he was from New Jersey. He was in California for the first you know for the first time. He was in rehearsals with Ozzy. He was telling us about how they how he how they wrote um, how they were writing the songs and what rehearsal was like. And he said, "Look at he would look over and he would see Geezer Butler." you know, playing bass and just bobbing his head and totally jamming out. And, um, God, that was just such a great conversation and a great night. Um, because at the time, you know, Zach was just, was, was like us. He was a young, um, up and coming, you know, musician who, who got this awesome opportunity and he was living his dream. And, uh, so that was super cool. And I, and another time, um, being at, uh, it could have been the same night. It might have been a different night. Because I've been to the cat house a few times. I remember meeting King Diamond and talking to him at the bar. And uh, my girlfriend was a huge King Diamond fan. So I asked him if he would uh, sign and uh, get his autograph for it. I remember him signing a napkin and putting a bunch of upside down crosses on it. Um, 
so, you know, things like that were, were super, super cool. Um, uh, and then basically you could just, uh, just, just the strip itself. I mean, there was just people everywhere walking up and down Sunset Boulevard and all these bands were just handing out flyers. Come see my band, come see that, you know, we're playing here, you know, a lot of bands, uh, you never heard of and never heard of again. And some bands like actually made it, um, or got a, got a deal. I remember, uh, Freeway Floyd, um, uh, was, was walking around flyering and I was talking to them and, um, I don't think they were from California. I think they had relocated too. And, um, and then a few months later they got signed. So it was just, the, just the street was just filled with a bunch of bands promoting and uh, a bunch of girls, just God, girls up and down the street, just all in high heels and leather skirts and, and big hair. And it was just, uh, like unreal it was amazing now when you talk about the scene you know when you talk about the sunset strip and you know stories that i've read about or seen in documentaries they always mention the flyers and how they were on everything that you could you know anything you could post them on they were on and it was just you know it, and in the morning you'd see all these flyers all over the street basically and it was oh yeah, it was so important to that scene to try to get bands and bands competing against one another. Yeah, it was crazy because I mean, you think about it. Back then, you know, there was no social media, and there was no, um, well, you know, cell phones or any of that kind of stuff. So really, what the only way you could let people know about your band was to either have an ad in a local magazine. Or to be personally out on the street with a hand, stack of flyers and handing them to everybody um, that you met, and hope that small, you know, a small percentage, ten percent of all these people that you met, hopefully, at least ten percent of those people will hold on to your flyer and come to your show that week or the following week. But um, yeah, I mean, flyers everywhere, flyers on the street, flyers on the poles, flyers on, on abandoned buildings. I mean, it was, there's just flyers everywhere of every single color too. The pastel colors were the ones that, um, a lot of the bands got because they wanted something that, that caught your eye. So there was fluorescent orange and fluorescent green and fluorescent yellow. And yeah. And it's like, they were all the same, you know, they, uh, logo, and uh, a glammed up picture of the band and then where they were playing that week. From what I remember, yeah, it was just like, it was like unbelievable. And then uh, even before the, uh, you would, you'd say, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, the next morning there'd be flyers all over the street. Well, it was like that, that at night too, because there's a lot of, a lot of people that would, you'd hand a flyer to and they just drop it or throw it down. So you think you're hundreds of people flying hundreds of flyers being handed to you and you keep some, you keep, you, you know, you, you drop others and it, it is just, uh, just everywhere. <laughs> so That's amazing. You mentioned that you were out there the day that the Guns N' Roses debut Appetite for Destruction was released. And as if I, if I remember yep. correctly, that album did not do anything for the first month. It was it wasn't until they re-released the video for Welcome to the Jungle several months later that people finally picked up on it. But I remember when that video came out, it was like dead on arrival. It didn't do anything. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, that was the difference. So, you know, I've always I've been in Chicago since 
I was a kid, right? So I'm out in California, Guns N' Roses album drops, the Thatcher Pussycat album drops. Everyone in California is buzzing about those two bands. You know, which one of these two bands are going to make it? You know, they're the, they're the next best thing to come out of California. And then trips over, I come back to Chicago, and you're right. I didn't hear from Guns N' Roses for months after that. Um, you know, I don't remember what radio. Do you remember radio in Chicago playing Guns N' Roses or anything? Because I don't. Not in the beginning. Not when it first came out. Yeah. I, know, I know VVX, you know, picked up on it several months later. Back in the day, you know, when that was going on, it kind of flipped in terms of what broke bands. It used to be radio. FM radio broke the bands. But it was MTV, and then radio would follow. And I remember watching Headbangers Ball, and the debut for Guns N' Roses came out. And I don't know if it was Ricky Rathman or Adam Curry who was hosting Headbangers Ball at that point. But it came out. And I don't know if people were ready for that look when it came out. Um, I think yeah, it was it pretty, pretty sneezy. Yeah, it was different. It was different. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so. And and um, it, it it took a while. In in actuality, though, Faster Pussycats album was more well received than the than originally than Appetite for Destruction. I remember hearing Cat House and bathroom wall don't change that number um all those songs that that were on that debut record from faster pussycat that was played more on radio in chicago than guns and roses was yeah and i remember they were the first uh, of the two bands they were the first ones to jump on a major tour because i remember seeing faster pussycat with ace fraley and ynt at the aragon i was at that um, show <laughs> so yeah so so yes, and how long it was? I don't think Guns N' Roses came to uh, Illinois till Aerosmith the album came out in '87. I don't uh, was that '87. I don't think that was until '88. So they came a year later. Yeah, but Faster Pussycat came to Illinois first in the eight in '87. But Guns N' Roses didn't get here until '88. Yeah. No, it was. It's amazing, you know, how that worked out. Um. I don't know who made the decision to repackage the debut or re-release the single, but it was the right one. And again, I've, I've said it before, music is all about timing and what didn't you know resonate in the beginning for Guns N' Roses, it certainly did after that because I think once Faster Pussycat came out, um, I think you know there's more kind of a push for quote-unquote sleaze rock and Guns N' Roses came out, Welcome to the Jungle, and they followed it up with Sweet Child of Mine. And they just, you know, they just jumped out of the stratosphere. Yeah, and then all of a sudden they were just out of the stratosphere at that point. I mean, yeah. Um, but yeah, they 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 started out slow, like you said, and then all of a sudden, you know, a year later, boom, they just exploded, and now they are who they are, legend, legendary. Now, you made mention too about the Zach Wild conversation. He was under twenty one when he first joined Ozzy, right? Yeah. So, um, how he got into <laughs> how he got into the cat house is beyond me. But I think I think the cat house had some, uh, you know, they had uh, they would let certain people slide in, um, you know, you know, whatever. They probably had paid out the door guy or whatever. But yeah, does that I think maybe younger than me. So if I was twenty one and I was there, he was probably nineteen or twenty at the time. 
Yeah, and so, like I said, he was just this tall, skinny, long, blonde-haired kid standing by himself, and he wasn't with anybody, no one from Ozzy's camp, no, no, no bodyguards, no roadie types, no handlers, nothing. Here's this kid just standing by himself in the middle of um, the cat house, and not one single person was talking to him, and nobody knew who he was except when my buddy pointed him out and then all of a sudden, like I said, my brother and I went to talk to him and he was so super cool. I mean, he was surprised that people knew that we knew who he was. And then, um, then he just completely opened up and just talked to us. Like, I, God, I think it's at least an hour. I mean, about everything he was telling us about, you know, what he, when he was at home in New Jersey, learning how to play Randy Rose's solos. And then, um, you know, to, writing how he was telling us how he wrote um what the the lead song off of no rest for the wicked do you remember the name of it because i, I can't it think of it off the top of my head miracle man thank you so he was saying that he wrote miracle man um uh, he took a, a Jimi hendrix riff and just kind of modified it and then turned it to miracle man <laughs> so stuff like that so he was t- giving us inside information about how he how he was writing music and how they're coming up with the riffs and he's just like, yeah, wait till the album comes out. The first song is called Miracle Man and I took this Jimi Hendrix riff and I just kind of turned it into it. You'll, you'll hear it when it comes out and we're like, okay, we'll listen for it, you know? So he's telling us all this stuff. Um, but yeah, that was probably... What, um, was, that was, what was it like for you being a huge Randy Rhodes fan? You know, we, we did an episode, a whole episode about watching him in concert. And now talking... Well, I remember... Yeah, and now talking to, not his replacement, but a, you know the guitar player in Ozzy Osbourne's band. Yeah, I I do remember specifically asking Zach. I'm like, are you going to play when you play the older songs? Are you going to play Randy Rose's solos? And I remember Zach saying, I'm going to play those solos to the best of my ability, note for note, because in my opinion. Uh, it'd be a disgrace to Randy Rhodes not to. His solos are just as important to, to the songs as as Ozzy's vocals and melody lines. And so uh, I plan on playing Randy's solos, you know, note for note, because, um, and, and he was a huge Randy Rhodes fan too. So I, I remember when he answered the question, um, I was really pleased. I was happy to hear that he had respect to Randy and was going to acknowledge Randy's work and, and play it on the tours, um, coming up with Ozzy. So, so, um, Randy Rhodes, obviously still my number one in my number, in my favorite, but much respect to Zach for, for, for saying that to me and for actually doing it. Um, after he, after I saw him play live for the first time, like, yep, he's doing exactly what he said he's going to do. In the meantime, he was evolving into a Viking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I knew skinny, clean-cut, big hair Zach in the very, very beginning before he became who he is today. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember those early, you know, videos and the live footage from that tour, and now what he is now. I mean, I'm a huge Black Label Society fan, and now when I go see him, it's like you know, he's he's he just got off the ship and he's a pirate Viking guy and. You know they're gonna they they go from each town to town on a pirate ship. 
Right, exactly. Remember when he was in Rockstar and they made him shave his beard off and get him all clean cut again? <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> then, yeah, he was in the movie Rockstar. He was the League of Tar Players yes. for Steel uh, Dragon. Yes. So, you know, he got to keep his long hair, of course, and then they had him shave, his, shave the beard off. So he was all clean cut for the movie, and then as soon as he was done with the movie, he grew his beard back out. <laughs> so, I do remember that now, yes. So then where did it go from there? Yeah. You, you had your first experience, you know, at the cat house, you know, seeing, you know, Tamey Down and Faster Pussycat, Pretty Boy Floyd, you saw Zach Wild, all the flyers, the chicks everywhere. Where does it go from there for you? Yeah. Um, well, I, I remember going back again. Uh, I was there, I went there in 87, and then I went back again in 88, and um, 89, and then and things like that. Um, so I went back pretty much every year after that for a while. And, um, and one of the, like I mentioned before, one of my friends bands from Chicago had relocated there. So I remember going out there, um, to, to and staying at their house. And then they were playing a huge show at the country club. And this turns into an interesting story too. Uh, so Tommy Gunn is playing with jailhouse. Remember jailhouse, the guys that were in rough cut and they yeah. formed a new band. I do remember them. So, so Tommy Gunn and Jailhouse are playing at the country club. And so obviously we're there because I'm staying at Tommy Gunn's house. So it turned, so in the audience that night was uh, Vince Neal and um, Dave Mustaine from Megadeth. And uh, I think this part gets a little hazy. Somebody from Rat. Is it Stephen Piercy? I think it was Stephen Piercy. So, you know, they're all they're they're all off tour. They're all hanging out at the at the country club that night. So the show ends and Vince Neal invites us all back to his house for an after hours party. We're like, Are you fucking kidding me? And so uh Vince Neal had a limousine waiting for him out front and he basically tells tells us, you know, um yeah, you know, my limousine's out front. Uh, follow me back to my house. And we're like, fuck yeah, let's go. So, you know, all the guys in Tommy Young and me and I, my brother was out there. My sister was at the show. We all jump in our cars. There is this huge limo and then a trail of cars leaving the country club, all driving into the hills to uh, Vince Neal's house. So I remember Vince Neal's limo goes up. He, had, he was in a secure neighborhood. So the limo comes out, goes to the front gate. The guard comes out. You see Vince Neal talk to the guard and pointing to all the cars behind him saying, yeah, these people, let, let, them, all get, let them all come to the house. So the gate opens, the limo goes through. All of us follow Vince Neal to his house. Um, limo drops him off. We park our cars. And I'm like, I can't believe this is actually happening. And, I walk up and I ring the, the front doorbell and Vince Neal opens the door and he's like, Hey, come on in. And, uh, so we came in and he was, at, he had this huge party and it was, it was awesome. I remember being in his kitchen and having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him and about, you know, uh, they just got off of the, the tour for, uh, wild side. Girls, and girls, he girls. Was saying, girls, girls, thank you girls, girls, girls. And, um, and we were talking about, about that. And the thing that was kind of sad was that 
the one thing I do remember that was kind of sad is him and that's when him and Sharice were going through issues, going through some problems. And, um, there was a, uh, a picture of him and Sharice, uh, from their wedding day that he had, um, put face down on, on the counter. Um, and I just remember walking by that and it was kind of, that, that was the sad part because you could tell he was like in a lot of pain and hurting over it, but he was still trying to be gracious and, uh, open up his house to all of us. And, uh, he wasn't drinking at the time. You said, uh, he's like, I'm not drinking, but the bar is in here. So help yourself to whatever you want. And so you go into his, his man cave area and, um, the walls were just covered with gold and platinum albums. And he had this huge pool table and then he had this huge bar and he just completely opened up his house to all of us. Um, you know, and who, who was I at the time? You know, I was just a, a guy in a, in a band out of Chicago that was on vacation in, in California. And here I am at Vince Neal's house talking to him in his kitchen. And I remember also having a conversation with Dave Mustaine and we were talking about, um, when he was in that movie, um, Decline of the Western Civilization, and we were talking about how his song closed out the movie, and um, just it was just awesome. I mean, that was like one of my other favorite experiences from going out to California. I mean, just by chance, being able to go to Vince Neil's house and then hang out with other, you know, rock stars of that time. Um, so it was pretty amazing. That is pretty crazy considering he's inviting pretty much unknown people to him, to his house. And, right. you know, I mean, I, I can't imagine that ha- happening today with, you know, how people are and with Facebook and everyone's walking around with a camera, you know, in their back pocket. Um, I don't know if that could happen today. I mean, you're telling a story and yeah. I'm envisioning it how I'm envisioning it. Everyone's going to have their different vision of it, but that's just remarkable how he was just like, and how many people were there? Do you estimate? Um, probably about 50, 40 or 50 people. Um, so there was Vince Neal and he had some of his, you know, he had some of his handlers, I guess you would call it. Cause they were kind of walking down the house, making sure nobody was doing anything they weren't supposed to. And they're just like, you know, Hey, it's cool if you're here, but you know, don't take, please don't take any pictures or anything. Um, type of thing and uh and then that was it i mean everyone was like very cool and laid back and you're absolutely right i don't probably wouldn't happen today because of cell phones and stuff but back then you know no one had no one had any other than you know a kodak instamatic camera um that's all anybody had and they just asked us not to take any pictures um somehow uh, i got away with taking one picture uh there's a picture of me and my brother in the, in the man cave with all the golden platinum records behind us. Um, and we got, we got one picture in and that's when they're like, Oh, no pictures. So we got the one. So I, I do have documentation <laughs> of being at Vince Neal's house. There you um, go, man. You got to get one, right? Yep. Yep. So, uh, yeah, so you're right. I, I just don't think, um, I don't think things like that happen anymore. Uh, but that was, you know, back then, um, things were different and, and it was just, uh, everyone was just, uh, you know, rock star and no, no rock star. You know, here you got Vince Neal going to a local book club to see local, local bands play on his night out, night off or whatever. And then, you know, deciding to have an after hours party and inviting a bunch of strangers over. I mean, 
I can't, I still to this day can't believe that that even happened. I mean, I got to experience it. So, you know, it's, it's insane, but that was part of that whole scene. You know, things were, that's whole, that whole sunset strip scene just, that just goes to show those things, what happened then and what the things that went on back then will, uh, that will never happen again. You went out there quite a few times, and what were some of the other things that you experienced and saw? I mean, you've been to the Rainbow, you've been to all these other clubs like the Troubadour and the Whiskey. What other stories do you have rubbing elbows or seeing things? I mean, imagine, you know, on a Friday and Saturday night or any night at the Rainbow, you're going to see something. You know, there's, there's probably there's probably more stories that I can't think of off the top of my head. <laughs> there's, but there was always, uh, there was always something, um, going on. I remember going to, uh, was it the whiskey? Yeah, it was the whiskey and going upstairs to the second level. And there was just a couple having sex in a booth right in the open and, and nobody cared. <laughs> they were just going at it. And, um, and I'm just like, wow, only, only in California, only in Hollywood. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, that wasn't going to happen. I don't think that was going to happen. Um, any, at least if it was happening around here, I didn't see it, but it was definitely happening out there. You also had tower records, which was right there in the scene too, as well. I mean, you had this big record store, this big, you know, name recognized, you know, recognizable name record store that everybody knew about. There was one in Hollywood. There was one in South Bay, Later on, they franchised, and they were there was a couple here in Chicago. That had to be a cool experience too, because I mean, they would have these artists come in and sign autographs. They would do album release parties, all that stuff. Oh man, that Tower Records was huge. It was amazing, just rows and rows and rows of albums and rows and rows of cassettes, and and uh, you could go in there and. Uh, they were 24 hours too. I didn't know if you knew that or not, but no. it was, they were 24, seven, 24 hours, seven days a week. You'd go in there at any time and, and shop or do whatever. Um, I think I even heard stories about how Jim Belushi would go in there like at three in the morning, <laughs> all coked up and he'd go in there and buy records and stuff. Um, but yeah, at any given moment, it was like right in the heart of the Sunset Strip. So, you know, and being 24 seven, you, you know, actors, actresses, and, and musicians would just would, would pop in there at any given moment. You never knew who you would see there. And that was like the same with the rainbow. You know, the, the, the rainbow was like the mecca for, um, for um, conjuring, you know, getting together and, and, and meeting up with people. So any given moment, you never knew who was going to be in there, you know? So, yeah, it's just, but God, Tower Records. Man, do I miss that place. It was so, so cool. Even the one here in the Chicago and the, the, the yeah, even the one here in Chicago and the suburbs was just awesome too. I mean, they were open till I think midnight or one AM. And I remember dropping my girlfriend off and then, you know, or whatever at like eleven, eleven thirty and and uh, I would drive over there and just buy a couple albums and go home. And I would just sit in my room and I would listen to some, you know, new cassettes or CDs that I got. And it was awesome. I loved it. It was great. Yeah, there was a tower. Which was uh, which tower record did you used to go to? Because I used to go to the one that was um, by Stratford Square in Bloomingdale. 
I went to the one in Schaumburg near Woodfield. Okay. Oh, that's right. There was one right on Golf Road. Yeah. Um, I like TJ, we're TJ Maxx's now or something like that. But yeah, I think yeah, it's I some, mean, like, like outdoors store now or something like that. Or yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I remember, uh, um, the, we would do Christmas at my parents' house and after, you know, Christmas dinner and stuff, we would jump into the car and we'd drive to the tower records because they were open on Christmas. Uh, this was before, you know, all the other retailers were open, but Tower Records, their whole thing was we're open seven days a week, um, 24 hours a day, no matter, or, well, I don't know if they were 24 hours, but they were at least seven days a week, right? So we would go there on Christmas night and, uh, and, and take our Christmas money that we just got and buy records and CDs and stuff. And, um, I remember going there when Anthrax was doing a, a record signing and, um, and I had, at the time, I owned a Jackson Scott Ian model guitar, and I brought it into the store and Scott Ian signed it. So, yeah, that's another thing. You know, those, the record stores of, of the day that yeah. are no longer around. Yeah, I miss that place. Yeah, me too, buddy. What, uh, if you were to tell me the most surprising, you know, or the person that surprised you the most of seeing that person on the Sunset Strip, who would that be? Uh, that surprised me the most. Yeah, like you did not expect to see them or run into them while you were hanging out on the strip. Um, the the Zach Wild meet, uh, meeting him was was pretty um, pretty amazing. Um, I met a couple of porno porno stars <laughs> also on the Sunset Strip. Um, surprise! Surprise. <laughs> Right, and Ron Jeremy, God, he was fucking everywhere. He was, he was back then. Apparently, he still is now. And he was um, fucking, and he was fucking everywhere. <laughs> right? Yeah. Every. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I still remember when when Lemmy was alive, um, seeing him playing video poker at at uh, the Rainbow. Um, you know, and he was always he was always you know drinking his Jack and Coke and playing his, his video poker games. And he was just kind of hanging out and doing his thing. Um, oh, geez. I know there was a, there's a few others, but, um, yeah. Uh, what was, just, you just know, reminiscing that for, time. for the people that are not familiar, what was it like to be at the rainbow? So the rainbow itself is just, uh, it's really just um, a restaurant with a small bar in the back and then uh, a little bit bigger outdoor bar. So the place itself is not really that impressive. It's just, it's just like a, uh, an old school uh, restaurant and with a small bar. But because of its location, um, it was just the place to be. But when you, but you know, just in general, it's just uh, the restaurant part. Uh, what made th- that cool was that they would have um, pictures and posters of rock stars on on the walls. So it's whatever booth you sat in, you never knew which what picture is going to be in there. It could be a picture of Dio, or it could be a picture of Ozzy, or it could be a picture of Guns N' Roses. So um, the part with the the, mem- the rock and roll memorabilia. It, um, hung all over the walls. That part's cool. 
running into any given celebrity at any time, that part was cool. Uh, but just the building itself is not really anything, isn't a big deal. It's just the reputation that it has and its location that made it legendary. And even to this day, um, when I go out to California, um, in fact, uh, I was lucky enough to get to play at the whiskey um, two years ago when I was out there with uh, Janet Gardner from Dixon when I was playing um, in her playing guitar in her band. So I got to play at the whiskey, and then after sound check, I went to the Rainbow and um, and had dinner, and it, it still looks the same. Is it you know in 2017 it looked the same as it did in 1987? You know they have not changed that that building whatsoever. Um, still had all the rock and roll memor- memorabilia on the walls. Still kind of dark. Had the uh, the boots were all like half circle, you know, vinyl boots with tables. Where you hear the story, the band's getting blowjobs in the table. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I mean it's. That, that it, it hasn't changed. It's the same as it was when I first went, when I went there for the first time 30 years ago. When you talk about the early part of the scene, you know, we, we mentioned, you know, Motley Crue and Rat, Quiet Riot. You know, there were other bands mm-hmm. too as well, like Rough Cut that we just mentioned and Black and Blue and Wasp and Dokken. All those bands coming up to the later years of the scene. You, know, you mentioned... Pretty Boy Floyds, the Faster Pussycats. We can also talk about bands like South Gang that were all part of that scene, all part of that moment. And now it's completely different. Now you have the Troubadour still there, the Viper Room you know, has, has bands, Whiskey does, the Roxy, is that still there? Uh, the Roxy has tripped to a couple different venues, but the building itself is still there, okay. I believe. Uh, Whiskey's identical to how it was from back in the day. Uh, Rainbow's identical. Tribulor's identical. Uh, Roxy's gone through a few changes, and then Gazari's no longer exists. Um, there's a, and that's the thing that's really sad. Like I said, I played there, I, I played at the Whiskey two years ago. And before, you know, you'd walk out the doors of the whiskey and there's people everywhere and bands everywhere and, and rock and roll fans everywhere. And now, you know, you walk out the, the, my experience two years ago, walking out the front door of the whiskey and you're surrounded by, you know, rest, corporate restaurants and banks. And, and it's just like, there is no scene at all. I mean, at all. Yeah. You don't see people hanging out in, on the Sunset Strip anymore. You see people parking their car, getting valet parking, and then going inside the whiskey. <laughs> or you see people, um, you know, going to the, the, the Bank of America or going to the sushi restaurant or whatever. But the rock and roll scene, or the music scene in general, there is, it, it's non-existent. You know, there's just, it's, it's no different than us going to see, to a club to see a band around Chicago that where the club is, located in a strip mall next to a, a Jewel Osco or something like that. You know, there's just no scene. You go to the venue, you go in to see the bands, you leave, and that's it. There's no hanging out. There's no scene. It also... And it's sad. Yeah, but, it is sad. I mean, one of the contributing factors to that, too, is younger people don't go out as much as, you know, our generation did. You know, they're staying at home. They're They're streaming movies. They... You know, they can watch live performances on YouTube. They can do all that. 
and they're not going out as much as they used to. And, you know, they're not awesome. They're also not as, you know, especially the bands are not partying as hardcore as the bands once did. Um, I, I don't know if that really contributes to the scene, but, you know, I was talking to the guitar player for this band station uh, that's out of New York, and they're a relatively new band. And he said something really interesting, that the scene now is planet Earth. Bands can reach anyone, anywhere, by Spotify, YouTube, social media, and they don't have to develop a, a following locally where they're from. Right. And that's absolutely correct. I mean, and, and this is for another, maybe another subject to talk about someday, but um, have you seen uh, the Twisted Sister documentary? I have where not. Where they talked about how, yeah, so they... Uh, you know, bands back then used to like get these residencies where they would play five nights a week at a club and do like five sets a night. And they would go from, they do that, they spend a week at this club and then they go to another club and then they go to another club and they would have to like build their draw that way. Um, as opposed to now, which is, you know, open up a YouTube channel and throw your video out there and how many hits can you get? You know, Mm -hmm. um, and then you got shows like, um, you know, um, American Idol, where you just walk on a TV show, the they bunch of producers glam, you know, dress you up and have you sing some songs, and then, you know, if you do well enough and make it to the to the finale, you know, oh well, now we we'll, we'll give you a record deal, and it's like, you know, nobody nobody pays their dues like they did back in the day, you know, I mean. And Twisted Sisters and the Motleys and the Van Halens. Van Halen playing backyard parties, you know, um, for years before they made it. I mean, nobody, none of the bands do that now because they don't have to. I, you know, I had a conversation with Mark LaBelle uh, from Dirty Honey a few uh, New Music Spotlight episodes ago. And you know, we were talking about the same thing about the the amount of hours that bands have to put in to really get traction for, you know, themselves and to get on a tour and to get noticed on social media. You know, so I, I do think that rock music still has that you got to pay your dues. I think it's a lot harder now in terms of getting noticed, especially when you factor in all the social media platforms, when you factor in None of these fucking tours this coming summer are having any new rock bands on it, which fucking is total bullshit. I get pissed every time I think about it, as you can tell. Um, so they got to go yeah. on. They got to go oh. on their own. They got to do like a you know, like I saw a Tyler Bryan Temperance Movement, Dirty Honey, and the Amazons are touring this winter. You know, there's other examples of that too. You know, the scene is over. The scene's never coming back. It there's no infrastructure for rock and roll. I've touched on it here several times in previous episodes, and yep. you know it, the, the bands have the benefit of reaching anyone they want. But the flip side to that is is it doesn't matter if no one knows who you are, and the only way right. to yeah the only way to get traction and people to notice you is to play or get on a tour, which is rare now. 
or you just got to keep at it and you got to have the right people around you. You've got to have the right publicist. You got to have the right management team and you got to be on a record label, whether small or large that can get you on a tour or get you noticed somehow, some way. And it's sad. You mentioned, right. the, you mentioned the, the American idol. There's people out there that think all they need to do is know how to sing in the shower and they're ready for American Idol, and that's how it's done. And that is absolutely ridiculous. It's not how it's done. And yeah, you're right. It, 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 I wish it was. Well, that's the thing, you know. You you hit you. You mentioned earlier, you know, nobody nobody goes out to see live music anymore because they, they they're they're in the digital world of um, computers and gaming and YouTubing and Spotifying and streaming and Netflixing and all that stuff. Um, I mean, um, this is before both of our times, but, um, I heard Chicago, uh, back in the late seventies, early eighties had a really thriving music scene and there were, uh, rock bars in Schomburg and in St. Charles and these places were open. This was when the drinking age, I think was 19. So, um, you know, you had bands playing every night of the week somewhere in a different part of the Chicago area and they could sustain themselves. And then they could get notice and get record deals, you know, in that way. Um, but at, at one point, you know, Chicago did have a music scene. And it wasn't just the Thirsty Rail. There was like places, beginnings in Schaumburg um, and places like that. And then when the drinking age changed and then with, with, you know, MTV and videos and now all the technology and streaming and stuff. Now there's no, there's no scene to go to. People stay home. Yeah. I mean, the height of it was the MTV generation in the eighties. I mean, you know, a band that, and that was the other, before I start this, you know, conversation here really quick, that was how it was done. Like bands were signed on talent, not because of followers. So if, if a record label or producer got wind of a band that was good, the, the, the record label would sign them, and they would have three albums at least to develop their fan base. You know, it, it wasn't like if, they got, if, they, if their first single dropped and it didn't do anything, they would be, you know, they would be dropped from the record label. You know, look, look at all the bands that we've talked about. You know, um, Motley Crue, Too Fast for Love, Shout the Devil, Home Sweet Home, three albums, you know, then, then on, on and on. Look at Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi's another great example. Their debut album had the hit Runaway. Their second album fell flat, and then they exploded with Slippery One Wet. There are examples after examples of that happening in the 80s. And I think in the late 80s, yeah. in, the, in, the, in the early 90s, that started to change. You know, that started, like, if, if, if you were able to get on MTV and your first single did not resonate, you might get a second chance with another single, or the record company would just say, you know what, we're, we're not going to release another single. After this album cycle, you're done. Um, and right. I think, yeah, it, it started to change then. You know, if you, didn't, if you didn't come out and be, you know, MTV was like the place to be. And, and record, record labels started to pay MTV to get their videos on more and more, you know, in, into the cycle, into the wheel. And it became, you know, a machine. Now MTV doesn't right. play videos, so it doesn't even matter anymore. Yeah, because it went from uh, late seventies, early eighties, where you had to uh, play 
you know, five sets a night and play at different clubs and people act of, actually had to physically come see you. And so there was that scene. And then there was the whole MTV scene that you had just talked about. Um, and then now nothing. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I mean, I, I, I read or, or actually heard an interview where David Coverdale was saying that, um, you know, for a long time, White Snake was not popular in the United States, but once Still the Night got airplay on MTV, that changed everything for him and for White Snake. He said he probably would have had to have toured it heavily and really worked that album if it wasn't for, you know, MTV. So MTV broke White Snake in the States. And so they did that. MTV broke a lot of bands that way. Yeah, it was a machine. I mean, it was like you get your video on MTV, radio would see how popular it became, they would start playing it. I mean, rock music was predominantly what was played on the radio in the mid to 80s to the to the mid 90s. And I mean, it was like you you had two rock stations, you had, you know, two or three in in, in larger markets, one or two in smaller markets, but you had the infrastructure in place and unfortunately as time moves on, the, the infrastructure has disappeared. The ability to get your music in front of people that resonates has become harder. Even though it's easier to get it out, you still got to connect with the people. Right. Because now uh, it's easier to get it out, but it also it's easier to get lost in the digital world with all the other musicians and people who think they're musicians um, as well. So, Seems like anybody could start a YouTube channel and release whatever they put out, whatever they want. So, yeah, I just had a conversation with John Strickland from Low Water, who's a band out of Athens, Georgia, and we were talking about how when these bands are making music, there's no one in the room anymore to tell them, "No, that's not going to work. No, that's not good. No, that's not ready." It almost seems like they're listening to their own ego. You know, they're 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 they're, exactly. they're believing more, they're believing how great they are. They're believing their own press, but you need one or two people in the room that tells you, "Eh, that doesn't sound good. It, it sounds like crap. You got to keep working at it." And not everyone can do that, right? I mean, if you if you have a fragile ego, a fragile state, you're not going to like criticism. But it's also almost for the good. I mean, everyone talks about the A and R guys back in the day, but those guys were right nine out of ten times. And yeah, you know, the John Collabers and the and the um, yeah, who's the guy from Arista that like was like made it, that signed everybody and got them. They were all huge. Um, oh God, um, was it Terry Reed? He like uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but anyway, you're absolutely right. A and you had A and R guys who actually had a pulse on what was going on in the scene, and they they help develop and build bands and would um, if something if something sucked they'd send it back in the recording studio or and would present a full album this happened to Warrant in fact Warrant finished their second record and presented it and they're like oh there's yeah, there's you guys need a single I think that's when Jenny Lane went back and wrote Cherry Pie and added it to the record but um, at the time, the record was done, and then the record the, they said no, you guys need a single, and so you had A and R guys guiding bands to to do that kind of stuff. Now it's like anybody can like 
gets recording software, do stuff on their computer in their bedroom, and then release it. And with no one critiquing it, guiding them, producing them, developing them, they're just, they just, there's no guidance. They just do whatever they want. And it's like a wild, wild west on the internet. I agree. I mean, it's, it is, I mean, there's a lot of great new bands out there. I, I think there's too much, too many platforms out there because it's hard for people to have one consistent place to go to. I don't know if that will change. I don't know if that will happen, but I, I like the fact that I can find bands, but I'm a different fan than most. I go and look for it, whereas most people don't. And I think that's what's the biggest thing with rock and roll today. I mean, obviously, the, the, the lack of physical ne- connection is not there anymore for any genre of music, but the fact that there's no infrastructure for rock right now is really hurting it, and it's why it's becoming more and more irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, you want to go to like places like, you know, I've gone to the last few Lollapaloozas, and it's like um, they got all these bands that you don't know. And then for me, a couple of years ago, I went and Greta Van Fleet was on one of the smaller stages, and that was like my favorite act of the entire day. And then last summer when I went, all these bands that I've never heard of, but um, Slash and the Cons- Slash and the Conspirators was on a on a on um, not so small of a stage, but they were my favorite act of the day and they hardly had anyone in attendance in front of their stage. Yeah. They had more people over and uh, were the at the Perry Farrell DJ computer whatever stage um, than they did for somebody like Slash, which yeah. was by far one of the by far the best act in my opinion, the best act of the day. But, you know, tell some sixteen year old girl there that's that's She's not there for Slash. You know, she's there for um, Post Malone or whatever act is out there yeah, no, <laughs> right now. Truth. But that is the cold. But yeah, for me, yeah. you know, that is the yeah, whole. Cold. My girlfriend and I were probably yeah, we were probably some of the oldest people at Lollapalooza, and we were at the rock stages to see the rock acts, which were phenomenal. But none of these kids had no had no idea, no clue. They were not at the Slash stage. They were not the good of Fleet stage. So, you know, they were at the the other the EDM stage, stage or whatever, stage. the DJ stage. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, that is the cold hard truth, my man. But uh, well, hey, I thank you for doing this. Another great episode. I enjoyed the stories. I enjoyed kind of taking a look back and kind of reliving all these things that happened during our youth. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. No, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me back. It's always a, it's always a great time talking with you and, and reminiscing about the past. And, you know, I'm so glad that I have that in my, in my history because it's, I can look back and, and, and at it and be like, you know what? Those are some great moments in time. Those are some great things that were going on. And I'm glad that I got to be a part of it. So thanks for uh, talking with me about it. I appreciate it, man. The Vince Neal story is a great one. I, uh, all the stories are awesome. Once again, everybody, Gerald Guzman, this is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Hope everyone's having a great holiday season. We will talk again soon. Take care.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 